Sabbath and we count toward Pentecost. It's two weeks away, next uh, two weeks from Sunday. Now, last time we got down to uh, more scriptures on the vine and fig tree, seeing that the symbolism of vine and fig tree is a symbolism of peace, prosperity included in a sense, but peace is the main issue so that prosperity can therefore occur. In unpeaceful times and war and difficulties, uh, it's hard to prosper because of the lack of peace. We get sidetracked and uh, waylaid and sideswiped and everything else. Although in time of war, uh, a lot of industrialists and various people do make money because they cause wars in order to make money. They can create havoc and then make money off both sides by selling arms and material and ships and so on to both sides. So there are people in the world who are committed to making war, not peace. That is their goal and their purpose. Well, their goal and their purpose is to make money, and if they can create wars and conflict in order to accomplish that purpose, then hey, they're good with that. Let's uh, let's get a bunch of people killed, and our bank accounts will get better. But peace with God is a time when things should go well, when we get along. And everyone is free to live under his own vine and fig tree in comfort and peace and in happiness and joy. Those are things that God would have for us. And I got down to, as I saw them at least, or found them, one that I didn't get to. Uh, it's in the New Testament, which mentions the vine and the fig tree. And in this particular case, it is a situation where there wasn't much peace. Uh, James is writing to the scattered tribes of Israel, wherever they were at that particular time when he wrote this. Some were here, I believe, in this nation, in this area. Others had been taken captive to the Middle East and migrated into Europe and were all over Eurasia at that point in time. So he wrote to the scattered congregations and scattered people wherever they might be on this earth. And they were having troubles. Uh, he mentioned wars and fightings and so on among you in chapter 4. So they were having trouble, whatever circumstances they were in, having peace. But he mentioned specifically in chapter 3, this issue, and uses the analogy that we have been using. So I want to pick it up there in James 3, and let's begin in verse 1. He says, My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Uh, he's opening a subject here by saying, We are prone to like to be heard, we are prone to like to be right, we are prone to wish that our opinion would be shared with others. In other words, we want to be right, and we would like to influence others with that. But there is a distinct warning here that when we put our 
teaching, our opinion, our understanding, whatever it might be, and it could be right or it could be wrong, but understand the position we put ourselves in when we set our hand to influence others one way or another. Because those who do that receive a much stricter judgment or a greater condemnation. So we must be very, very careful. In other words, don't take it lightly having a teaching, preaching, influencing position because what if you are wrong? And if you are wrong, you receive double the judgment of someone who did not try to influence others with what they believed. Now, you have a choice to make if you disagree with someone over here or someone over here about what they think. You can either choose to wait for that to be resolved, to see whether you're right or you're wrong or they're right or they're wrong, and things can remain amicable and essentially peaceable because there is not trouble being stirred. On the other hand, the moment that you set your hand, your head, your mouth, to influence others about what you think, you are causing God to take a closer look at you and how he will deal with you and how deep the condemnation for your problems will be. I'm not saying there shouldn't be teachers. I'm not saying necessarily you shouldn't be one. But the moment, whether it is official or you're just trying to influence others on your own, you need to consider the implications, the possibilities, and the greater judgment that could come upon you as a result. And sometimes you may think you're right when you were totally wrong. You know, there are many things I grew up believing, for instance, in the Church of God that have been taught from Pasadena that turned out to be absolutely wrong. Now, I had believed those things, some of them, all my life. I had preached them. I had spoken from the tops of the housetops, if you will, to hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people in different congregations here and there, and in Pasadena itself at times when I spoke there. So, I thought I was right all that time about some of the things that I believed, did, and taught. And I was absolutely wrong. Wrong about things about Passover, about the order of the Passover itself, about the calendar. On and on I could go. I had to change them. Now the very fact that I had not just believed and followed those things, but by the very fact that I had preached them and taught them, made me more culpable and more answerable to God. So then I had to preach the opposite just as strongly. But what about those people that I may have influenced 30, 40, 50 years ago? How do I go back and say, hey, I was wrong? In many cases, you simply can't. 
You just have to change and push forward to do, to do the best you can and hope that God will have mercy when you realize you were wrong. So, he says, be careful. And that's a general warning to people everywhere, as he was writing to Christians scattered abroad. And he says in verse 2, For in many things we offend all, just by the fact that we live and breathe and walk about on the earth and live a life, we will offend. It's inherent with a human being that he will say and do things that will create difficulty or attitudinal problems in others. Whether you do or say what's right or what is wrong doesn't matter because either way, others will be offended. And sometimes we truly are being offensive and sometimes we're not, but they're offended anyway. Well, there's all different facets of this. But in many things, overall, we offend all. One way or another, sooner or later. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, we should take a little hope and encouragement here from the standpoint that nobody is exempt from this. We all offend in word at one time or another, and unhappily, perhaps daily. So, we could have everything else correct in life, go through the right actions, and yet if we offend in word, we're imperfect, and nobody has been able to accomplish that yet save Christ himself. He's the only one who's not offended in word. So this is speaking to all of us here, not just the Israelites scattered wherever they were on earth, but recorded for us. And then he says, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. A, a horse is a lot bigger than us, and yet with a little bit about that wide in their mouth, we can pull on the reins or just gently tug the rein if they're halfway trained at all, and they'll change directions immediately and go the direction we want to go. Don't even have to have a bit a lot of times. With a well-trained horse and a good rider, they can just give it knee pressure and it'll go right where they want it to go. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, may be weighing thousands of tons today, and are driven of fierce winds. Yet are they turned about with a very small uh, helm or tiller or wheel, whithersoever the captain desires. They can change all those tons and maybe have 30, 40, 50 foot waves at the same time with stiff winds and just that little rudder will control the direction that that ship turns. Even so, the tongue is a little member, just like a rudder on a ship or a bit in a horse's mouth. It's not very big. I don't know what comparison there is, but if your tongue altogether weighed a pound, and you weighed 150 pounds, well, there's 150 to 1, so it's pretty small compared to the rest of your body parts. It's just a little member. 
and boasts great things. People can be in situations where... Have you ever been around somebody that just talked about themselves and boasted all the time? It seemed like their mind was only on them and what they'd accomplished and what they were going to accomplish and how good-looking they were or what kind of car they had. And you can't get their conversation off themselves. they got a little bitty tongue, but it controls their whole approach to life. And you can't get in a word edgewise. What if you wanted to brag a little bit? No chance, because they got the floor, and that tongue just goes. Behold, how great a matter a, a little fire kindles. You wouldn't think with just a word or two from your mouth, or how many ever come out, you could kindle a fire. But boy, we can create some firestorms with our tongues. Maybe another analogy here would be a, just a match. You strike a match and put it to cardboard and or gasoline, whatever. And boy, what a fire it can create. Just a little bitty match with five gallons of gas and you can burn down the whole factory. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Now, before we compared it to the size of a horse or a ship that it can turn... But here it says, the fire can set the world, I mean the tongue can set the world on fire. Now there's you, a comparison, tongue about that long, well maybe time it goes down your throat a little longer, and the whole world. You've heard politicians, maybe a Russian, maybe an American, whoever, inflame the whole world by a little speech they might make where they set everyone against them or what they stand for. It's a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body. You know, when you think of someone who offends with the tongue, you don't necessarily think of their tongue, you think of them. It defiles the whole body. And it defiles not only the body of the person using it, but it defiles the whole church, the body of Christ. Now, does Christ want a defiled body? No. His body was defiled by those people who tortured and killed him. And to him, it was not a pleasant experience. He didn't want to go through it. And we torture him with our tongues and the things that we say. So, was he tortured just by whips? Just by lashes? No. They did very hurtful, or said very hurtful words to him. They put him down. They called him all kinds of names. So the torture was partially verbal. And we... It has been said for many years in many places, tortured and killed Christ ourselves by our sins. It's not just those Jews back then, but all of us have crucified Christ with our sins. And with our tongues, we crucify him just as much with our other sins, and perhaps more.
because words can be very, very hurtful, can they not? It sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Speaking here of the uh, lake of fire. Not the grave, it's pretty quiet there. This would have to be the lake of fire. I didn't check the Hebrew word. I'm, yeah, I mean the Greek word, but I'm sure that's probably the one used here because of the context. And whether it took you to the grave, it could still be a, a, a correct analogy. But the lake of fire is the worst thing that can happen. And the tongue can cause people to wind up in the lake of fire. Either words of, out of their own mouth, or the words out of someone else's mouth who discourages and frustrates them to the point that they give up and quit and don't make it into the kingdom of God. Words can do that. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. We've been to SeaWorld or some of these places where they have dolphins and, and uh, various sea mammals that follow directions and do what you tell them to do and so on. Grizzly bears can be tamed. Lions can be tamed. Well, 99%, let's say. Once in a while it doesn't work and they, they kind of jump the traces. But, but overall what he's saying is certainly true. Those, whatever it is, man has been able to tame it. I've even tamed mosquitoes. It was a fairly violent uh, means that I used. I'm joking. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, have them live and be tame. All kinds of beasts have been tamed by mankind. But we have an exception here in verse 8. The tongue can no man tame. It's a flat statement. It can't be done. I guess I might as well shut up and sit down right now. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Strychnine. Whatever poison you want to name. The tongue is full of poison. That's a problem. That's a difficulty. Because it's spoken of here in not so good a terms. Therewith, bless we God, even the Father. And don't we? We pray to God, we talk to God, we sing hymns to God. And therewith, curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. We are made in the image of God. God created us to become God. Now, we wouldn't think, would we, of, of saying things evil of God, people have, but that is not our normal way of thinking or reacting. We wouldn't want to do that. We wouldn't want to curse God or say bad things about God, even though we can work ourselves into such a foul mood that we might, but that's very, very dangerous. And yet, we don't have much compunction about cursing men, putting men down, or being negative or judgmental or condemnative toward people, what, what's the problem here? 
It's as if we don't respect people as much as we do God. That's an interesting thought. Should we respect people as much as we do God? Essentially, yes. I think the answer to that is yes. Because they are made like God, and they are destined to become God, just as a son or a daughter of mine is destined to become a full-grown human being. So whether you curse me or curse my kid, you're still offending and cursing me. Because I take it personally when somebody cusses my kids or my wife. I don't care for that. I will defend her honor when I need to. So, it's the same with God. When you cuss God's kids, you're cussing God. Now, didn't God make that pretty plain when he told uh, Samuel? It's not me they hate, or not you they hate, Samuel, it's me. See, if we hate, if we have negative approaches, that is ungodly. It's just simply ungodly. Godly, God does not have those attitudes in the way that men have them. He does get angry slowly. He does get over it quickly. He hates sin, but he does not hate sinners. He hates the sin he sees in us, but he doesn't hate us. He loves us. And he tells us that we are to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, in one sentence, he says, love me. And in the second great commandment, he says, love your neighbor. So he puts them right together, doesn't he? So we have no right whatsoever to condemn or put down one another. Let's, I, we need to understand that, because in practice it seems that we don't get it or we have trouble practicing it because we find it so easy to pray to God and disrespect each other. Now, that's partially natural because God has no faults, and yet all of us do. And it's easy to pick on faults that we may see or think we see in someone else. It, it becomes a natural human thing. But natural human things aren't necessarily right things. The natural human, or carnal, to use that word, mind is enmity against God. So the natural way that we would react to one another is ungodly, and if ungodly, there's only one other source of attitudes in the universe, and that's Satan. So if it's ungodly thought, it's satanic thought by process of elimination. There's only two ways it can be. And we're caught here in a human sphere or realm where we're seeking to be like God, but our nature is more like Satan. That's the dilemma. That's the fight. That's the struggle that we all have. Well, James says you can't bless God and curse men. 
not righteously, not in righteousness. It cannot be done. Let's see him elucidate on that a bit more. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Have you ever bent down to drink at a creek or a spring or something, and you tasted the water on this side of the spring, and it was nice and sweet, and then you got on the other side and stuck your head in that side, and it was bitter? It's never happened. You can't have both coming out of a spring in the ground. It will either be sweet or it will be bitter because as the water comes up from under the surface and mixes all together and ripples through the rocks and wherever it comes from to get to the surface and comes out, it gets completely mixed. So it can't be both ways. And blessing to God and put each other down, that is an impossibility to do in righteousness. Because God considers everything that comes out of our mouth, then, bitter rather than sweet. You can't have it both ways. You can't do both. That's the point he's trying to make here. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine, figs. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Either way. Who is a wise man and imbued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. If you have wisdom, if you have understanding, don't boast with your tongue. Simply show good conduct. Live correctly, righteously, circumspectly, and with the meekness that wisdom bears. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Let's not deceive ourselves. If we have resentful, bitter, angry, hateful attitudes, thoughts, they're there. They're real. We even may feel they're justified because of what so-and-so did or said or didn't do or didn't say or whatever. But they're not justified. They are not of God. They don't come from God. And he says, don't lie to yourself about it. I mean, be truthful, be honest. Do I have a bad attitude? Do I have anger or bitterness or resentment towards someone? Be honest. We're talking about me. We're talking about you. We're talking about that brain that's in your noggin. Be honest with it. Don't lie to it. I mean, it's either that way or it isn't that way, and it may be that way with some people and not with others, and it may be there part of the time, and it may be there not all the time. But the point is, if it's there, it is something that needs to be gotten rid of. 
So he says, if it's there, don't lie about it. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. So he confirms what I said earlier, that if it is not uplifting, if it is not positive, if it's negative and downputting and backstabbing or whatever type of negative, hate, anger, maliciousness, resentment might be there, it's devilish, it's satanic, it is not of God. It is of this earth, sensual. You might call this worldly wisdom, or streetwise. It isn't of God. It doesn't come from God. It comes from the carnal mind, which is enmity against God. And he says, for where envying and strife is, any time we have envy or strife, disturbing the peace, difficulty in that sense, where there is envying and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. So, what he's talking about here, bitter envying and strife and negative attitudes come from the devil and from human nature. It isn't the wisdom of God. Now, let's see the contrast, he says in verse 17. The wisdom that is from above. Now, we've already discussed the wisdom which is from humans and from Satan. It isn't good wisdom. Remember the proverb that says, you answer a fool according to his folly, or you don't answer a fool according to his folly. It just depends on which fool you're talking to. And you have to have the wisdom to know whether it's even worth answering or whether it is not, because it won't do any good to answer it. People strive over words and various things, and Paul told us not to do that. So any time we see a lack of peace, that creates confusion and evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. There's no rancor, no bitterness, no anger involved in God's wisdom. And after pure, first of all, then peaceable. Peaceable. Gentle and easy to be entreated. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. So he's contrasting two different types of thinking, two different types of wisdom. Worldly wisdom which begets confusion and frustration, and then godly wisdom, which brings peace and happiness and joy, unity and closeness. No partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, Christ railed against the Pharisees quite a bit because of their partiality, because of their hypocrisy, uh, because they were Pharisees. And the church has become that, as we'll see a little later on. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So he starts this chapter out by saying the tongue is indeed a difficult member of the body. It's the toughest thing we have to handle. And about all the damage that it can do, and then he leads us on down to show us that the natural human tongue, the natural world, 
is going to lead to trouble uh, by the things that come out of our mouths. But, by contrast, if the tongue is used to make peace and say pure things and be gentle and full of mercy and kindness as opposed to bitterness and anger and resentment and cynicism and negativity. So what he's telling us here then is that as Christ told us in Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. He's telling us here that we have to realistically, honestly, look at ourselves and say, where is my tongue creating confusion, division, bitterness, anger, distrust, whatever, of others? Because we all have. He already said that. No man can tame it. Now, with the help of God and wisdom from above, we can make great strides toward taming it, toward controlling it, toward peace and making peace. So it's a positive thing. Instead of just doing what humans normally do, and that's make war, we have to set our minds and commit ourselves to make peace. It's a process. It is not an easy process. It's a difficult process. I think right here would be good to go to Romans 3. Because it carries that thought I just made. I had it planned for a little later down, but I think this would be a good place. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, James has already told us that no man can control the tongue. It's, it's the most unmanageable thing there is. Well, the mind that's right behind the tongue. Uh, but, you know, the tongue sometimes works without the mind even having been engaged. It, is, it isn't even in gear, and the tongue can rattle on. So, I, I think it maybe is the tongue... <laughs> Not necessarily the brain or the mind. Of course, there's a close uh, connection between the brain and the tongue, but sometimes you wouldn't think it. So he's already told us that we all have the problem. I, you know, somebody says, well, I don't know who you're talking to. Well, today, I don't think there's any way you can say I'm talking to anybody but you and me. Because we all sin with our tongue. And now... Paul follows it up by saying, there is none righteous, no, not one. So, that includes all of us. We all have unrighteousness. Are we all Philadelphians? And God says nothing bad about Philadelphians, and therefore we're righteous? I kind of doubt it, as I've said before. No, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. So he tells us, he's speaking here of the Jew and the Gentile at the beginning of this chapter. 
and says, what advantage does the Jew have or what profit is there of circumcision? And people use this to say that, well, the Jews must be right about the calendar because they had the oracles, the sayings of God. Well, they were wrong about the calendar. And he goes on to explain that they're wrong about other things as well. So he contrasts them with the Gentiles there in verse 9, that all are under sin. So it doesn't do any good for us to say, oh God, I'm a spiritual Jew, therefore I'm okay and I'm righteous, but all these other people, uh, oof. We can't do that. Because it doesn't matter whether we're just somebody out in the world or we're part of God's church and have understanding of truth, none of us is totally righteous. And I would say that for the most part, we have more self-righteousness than we do God's true righteousness. We can determine that by looking at the fruits. Now, notice what he says. Their throat is an open sepulcher. I've read in different places about how they'd have to exhume a a body once in a while, dig down, bring the casket up, and then open that thing. And I can't imagine anyone who was standing there when a coffin was opened after two or three months not gagging and vomiting all over the ground. It would be a horrible sight and smell to behold. And you would have a gag reflex immediately. Even people that are used to that have trouble with it. Paul's being pretty blunt here. He says our throats are like open sepulchers where you can smell what is inside. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. I wonder if Paul had experienced some difficulty with people's tongues at some point in his life to write what he wrote here. He says that just like snakes with the poison under the tongue, what did Christ call the Pharisees? Serpents and snakes. Now, they thought they were righteous. Did they not? They thought there was nothing wrong with them. And yet he called them open sepulchers, full of dead men's bones, and poisonous snakes. Hypocrites. Now, he's talking about Jew and Gentile alike here. Those who are physical Gentiles, I mean spiritual Gentiles, and those who are spiritual Israelites. He's writing to the Roman church, okay? Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He's essentially saying the same thing here that James was. James used some good analogies to try to get across to us uh, things about the human tongue. Paul's just unloading on us. <laughs> he's, he's not pulling any punches here at all. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. 
Well, he's talking about people. He's talking about people in the church. Obviously, in the Roman church, there must have been disunity, disharmony. There must have been jealousies and friction between people. There must have been attitudes of resentment and bitterness and hate and various things among those people. Or he wouldn't have written this. And some of them must have been pretty bad uh, because it sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of peace. In fact, the description he uses is pretty bad. I've never liked the idea of being snake bit. Uh, it's just I've always had a horror of that. Uh, probably because I grew up in an area where there were quite a few rattlesnakes around. And uh, I knew they were very dangerous and was taught so from early childhood. So I was taught to loathe them and to avoid them. And I didn't have a very good relationship with rattlesnakes. And uh, they didn't have a very good relationship with me either. Uh, we taunted them and teased them some as we got a little older, which was dangerous and stupid. But, hey, we're boys, you know. Boys do dangerous, stupid things. But truly, they can kill you. I have a, what would I call him, a, my niece's husband, whatever that would be, niece-in-law, who had been handling snakes for years and going to the Sweetwater Roundup there in Texas where they catch thousands and thousands. He figured he's handled a few thousand rattlesnakes in his life, and he got bit last year, almost died. The antivenom cost $50,000 to treat that snake bite. Ten, no, five $10,000 shots he had to take. So it's pretty bad. And rattlesnakes aren't even among the most dangerous snakes by any means on earth. There are far more poisonous snakes around. But Paul's just really laying it on. And he says, the way of peace have they not known. Do children, born in a family, start growing up together, know the way to peace? Many of you have reared children, or jerked them up, or whatever term you want to use. Did they automatically know the way to peace as human beings, just little guys? They were cute, and they could smile, and they were fun to play with and make them laugh and various things. But when they got get together to play, and they had toys, did they know the way to peace, or did they know the way to fighting and war, and jealousy and envy, and that's mine? That comes natural. That's easy to come by. And you spent a great deal of time with your little children trying to find a way to show them how to make peace and live in harmony and share. And you took toys away from selfish ones and you paddled behinds and you took away privileges and, and, uh, and you thought, oh, how am I ever going to get these kids to get along? They don't know the way to peace. And when we come out of this world to learn God's way, we have not learned the way to peace. Now, by a few broken noses and various things, we may have learned not to push too much somewhere. 
So we may have learned at some point, to some degree, to get along. But that's not generally true. If you consider this whole world, it's generally at war, somehow, some way. Between countries, within countries, within churches, within schools, on playgrounds, wherever you go, there's animosity and bitterness, hurt feelings and hate. So maybe it's only an illusion that we have a so-called civilized society that learns to get along and love each other in peace. I think that is a great illusion. Because no society is more than about that far from total war and our anarchy. Shut off the power and the food for about three days and see what you got. People killing each other, eating each other, it may take more than three days for that, but it doesn't take long for human beings to degenerate to their actual, natural level. Me first. And if you die, too bad. We, de- we degenerate there in a matter of hours or days. Sometimes minutes or seconds, <laughs> even in a so-called civilized. All it, all it takes is somebody saying one or two words... And they are, they're only, they're on the only nerve you have left that day. So, by nature, we do not know the way to peace. Therefore, we're looking at these scriptures today because maybe we can begin to find the route, the way, the map, the procedure to produce peace. Because God tells us to make peace, and the ones that do will be the children of God, implying that the ones that don't will not be the children of God. Okay? Does that fit with those scriptures that say, if you forgive men their trespasses, I will forgive you your trespasses. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, I will not forgive yours. You will not be a child of God and in the kingdom of God. We have to have mercy and kindness and learn to make peace. We must if we're going to be in the kingdom of God. Do you really think that God is going to have in his kingdom people who are full of resentment and anger and hate and bitterness and jealousy No. Those are ungodly traits. They won't be there. Godly traits are what will be there. Love, joy, peace, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit. Those will survive. The other, they won't be there. And if you insist on being that way, you won't be there. Therefore, we have to commit ourselves to be honest with ourselves and get rid of our satanic, human way of thinking. Because he calls it sensual and devilish in the book of James. And God put that in here for us. And Paul calls it dead men smell, poison of snakes, cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. Swift to shed each other's blood, It's so easy to do with knife stabbing or whatever, front or back. 
Some people choose to be furtive and stab you in the back. Others will just stab you in the face or the heart. It, you know, it just depends on the individual and whether they're which type personality they might have. But the knives need to be put away, and we read that last week, didn't we, about turning our plowshares, I mean our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. We have to make a transition somehow. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So he describes a natural human being and what their tongue and their mouth produces. And he says they don't know the way to peace. And furthermore, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If we treat each other with less respect in that sense than we do God, then we do not have the fear of God before our eyes. We think nothing of chewing on each other. Nothing. We think very deeply about it if they're chewing on us. We do not like to be chewed on. We take it very personal, very emotionally, and get very frustrated very rapidly when someone chews on us. But we tend to think nothing of it when we chew on someone else. Isn't that a strange thing? Chewing human flesh is okay unless it's our flesh. Then it gets sticky in a hurry. Sometimes I wonder, does it do any good to speak of these things? What's the point? Will we do anything about it? Or will we just go away and say, boy, we sure got it today. He sure was mean to me. No, these are the words of Paul. They're the words of James. And they're the words of God and are profitable for us in many, many ways. And I'm not chewing on anybody. I'm not angry at all. I'm just trying to get us to grasp something that we all have difficulty with and perhaps arm us in some way to do something about it. Because I want everyone here to be in the kingdom of God, ultimately. That's where we... That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're not here, are we, to keep each other out? It's, it's interesting to me that God revealed to people in this little room certain knowledge that caused them to come here. And that understanding led them here. And then it seems we get to the point where we look around and we say, well, I know why I came here, but I'm not sure why you came. Why would God bring you here? What are you doing here? I don't like you here. Why don't you go away? Why did you come in the first place? You're disturbing my peace. 
a scripture came to mind when that thought occurred to me, and it's back in Matthew 13. I think we should look at it in this context. Matthew 13, and begin in verse 24. Another parable put he forth to them, saying, The kingdom of God is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. Now, he's going to tell us here a story about the kingdom of God and something that pertains very deeply to the kingdom of God in terms of conduct and attitude and so on. So he sowed good seed in his field. Now, God sows good seed. If he calls someone, he expects them to make it into his kingdom. Okay? He had an opinion before he called you that you are one that could be a part of the kingdom of God. He wouldn't have opened your mind had he not thought that was a good possibility. He would have waited till the millennium if you lived that long or the great white throne judgment to then teach you the truth. But the very fact that Everyone in this room who's been called and repented and baptized and so on, God called. God called. Did you call yourself? Did anyone in this room call themselves? No. You had your mind opened in some way or another. You came across the truth. And somehow you recognized it and began to look more and more at it until you learned enough that it changed your whole life and the direction it was going. Your whole approach to life was changed. Without the Spirit of the Father, no man can come. Very clear. Nobody got here without God opening their mind. So God planted good seed. Those that had a possibility of producing good fruit. He would not have planted it any other way. Now, you can make a judgment yourself on somebody, but is it the judgment of God? Why are they here? Is that your question or mine to ask? Why do we doubt one another? Why do we question one another? Why do we have attitudes and maybe even say things to one another or about one another? If God is the one who called, God is the one who opened the mind. Because that is a potential child of God, and in fact, he already calls them his children. Now, God is very, very jealous of his children. He is very jealous of his children. He has an empirical self as well. He is the ruler of the empire, and all that is in his empire is of him. If it was not of him, as Satan became, he was cast out of that empire. Now, he hasn't been fully put away yet, but that's coming too, because God will take care of it. So, there's some deep lessons to learn from this parable. God sowed good seed. If he's opened your mind to truth, he planted that good seed to grow and to produce fruit. Every one of us. 
Now going on. Uh, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Satan is quite capable of looking at what God has planted and coming in in the night and sowing tares among God's true people. That's a possibility. Even the CIA can do that by implanting people to try to subvert or infiltrate. Governments of men do it all the time everywhere around the earth. It is a satanic practice started by him and continued by men. So, even though I made the statement, if God called and opened the mind, which is the only way anyone can understand, then it was a good seed, or potentially so, that he was working with. But then there is the problem that Satan can come in and plant his own among the good seed. Aha, now we're getting somewhere. I know who he's talking about. Okay, think that if you want. But let's move on and see if you can get away with it. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Thought he'd done a good job there. I'll fix him. I put dirt in his gas tank. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So, God planted seed. Satan planted some seed among them. And then they start growing up. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence then has it tares? How did these weed seeds get in here? So the servants, who were familiar with crops, must have to some degree been able to tell the difference between wheat just sprouting and another plant, a tare, that was sprouting with it. He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Will you then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No. Don't do that. Don't try to make a judgment on whether that's wheat or whether that's tares. You might make a mistake. You could be wrong. You might make a bad judgment. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. You disturb the ground, you try to pick the tares out, you may uproot the wheat as you go. Maybe you can, maybe you can't tell the difference between them. Fruits will out eventually, sooner or later, one way or another. But the instruction here is, let both grow together till the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he says, a good judgment cannot be truly made until they either produce fruit or don't. They'll either have wheat berries or they won't. And then it's easy to tell which is which. So first you take out the bad, the waste, 
and put it in the fire, and then you gather the good stuff into the barn. <coughs> I would say, based on this, we need to be very, very careful in trying to determine now who might or might not be truly converted, who might or might not have been called by God or planted by Satan. That's not our judgment to make now. We are to help each other, strengthen each other, help each other produce good fruit. And if some do not, that's on them if they're not truly wheat. But we don't have the right or the opportunity to go into God's field and try to sort out ahead of time what's good and what's bad. We must be very, very careful, because we could incur his wrath if we molest that which is truly weak. And it's easy to make a bad judgment. You know, as a pastor over the decades, it's been my job to go to prospective members' houses and try to determine by the things they said, the attitudes they had, what they seemed to really understand or not understand, whether they were truly understanding and being led to be a part of the church of God or not. And some of those, boy, your mind and emotions would go back and forth and forth and back. Sometimes it was pretty obvious from the, even the first, but you'd give it another second or third or fourth visit or whatever most of the time, to be sure that the correct judgment was being made. But with some people, you could go back eight or ten times and still be scratching your head, and with some, you just said, no. They read an article, but it didn't take. It's just not there. Now, if God was working with them, maybe a year or two or three later, they'd get it a little better, and you'd come back, and things had changed. And then they were more ready. But you had to counsel people before baptism to try to help them determine whether they were truly repentant and ready to commit to God's way of life or not. It wasn't just a matter of, let's say, the minister making a decision to his satisfaction that they were okay. Really and truly, it's, about a, it's a matter of helping that person see where they stand helping them grasp their spiritual circumstance and whether they truly needed God in His way in His church or didn't, whether they were ready to commit themselves entirely to it or not, or whether other things would come along, such as the parable just before this. Some sowed in good ground, some sowed in rocks, some sowed in you know, thorns and so on and would have difficulty producing under those circumstances. You know, you could be converted, or partially converted, start toward conversion at least, and be caught in a situation, be it a marriage, be it a uh, job, be it a social circumstance, whatever it might be, that's pretty thorny or doesn't have much godliness there, on, planted on the rock, whatever, and you might have extreme difficulty trying to grow in a godly direction 
when you're in a bad circumstance or environment. That was such a critical issue that Paul even used 1 Corinthians 7 to explain that if you had one person who was being converted and committed to God, and they had a person they were married to that was fighting them every step of the way and trying to stop them, that you could legally separate, divorce, and not be bound to that person. Because even though the physical laws of marriage and divorce are important and should be adhered to, there is a time for spiritual reasons, Paul says, that God would overlook the law on a spiritual level and allow divorce and remarriage, but only within the church, he said, not to become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Don't do that. Don't go there. Because it will be very, very difficult for you to grow and to produce the kind of fruit you need to produce when you're married to an unbeliever. So when some came and God only called one out of the marriage and the other was not and was an enemy, then God said you can righteously put that person away and not be married to them or bound to them anymore because of the spiritual harm it's doing to your only chance at salvation. Spiritual salvation, then, becomes far more a far greater value than physical marriage, is what Paul was saying. Physical marriage is important, and it should not be broken up except under and for certain spiritual reasons. I won't go into all that today. What time is it? Time to quit. But the point is, we have to be in as good a situation as we can because it's hard to grow under the best of circumstances. And when it's in poor circumstance, it becomes almost impossible. And God even says, let them grow together. So we need to be very, very careful that we don't put anyone down, that we don't question or try to harvest them ahead of time, you know, decide whether they're wheat or tares. No, we need to be kind and gentle. Who knows what God is doing with that person? Do you realize that God would have, could have, the capacity to take that which is sprouted, which was a tear, the seed was of a tear, of a weed, that God has the capacity to change that by a divine miracle into a wheat stem? Maybe it truly was a tear. Maybe it grew halfway up as a tear. Weren't we all weed seeds at one time? Weren't we all of the world and of Satan at one time? Did God not somehow, miraculously, change your mind about a lot of things and lead you to the truth? We were all tares. We were all carnal human beings. We did not have the Spirit of God, did we? No. God changed us. 
So how do you know, apart even from the parable, that if someone who is a tear in your opinion might have their mind opened by God himself and be turned into a wheat-producing plant? If he did it with you, he could do it with them. So even your judgment, good or bad, right or wrong, can be changed by God. Very simply, by opening a mind. He can do that. We must be very, very careful, brethren, that we learn to produce peace. I didn't get anywhere near where I wanted to go through this today, but I think taking the time to go through James and Romans and so on maybe helps us see a little more clearly what we're up against. And that changing the way our mind thinks and the way our tongue reacts is imperative if we're to be a part of the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit is what will survive. And if you look at it in Revelation 21 and 22, uh, the unclean in any manner, the law-breaking, those without the right attitude will not be in the New Jerusalem. They'll be without, and only those who have been converted in their thinking and their minds and their approach and their attitudes toward man and God will be there. That's just a fact, because as James said, you can't have sweet water and bitter out of the same mouth. It is impossible. The bitterness will destroy whatever sweetness you have. So our goal, then, is to clean it up perfectly so that we can get all the bitterness out we can. You know, there are fountains that are more bitter than others. If there's any bitterness there, there'll be a certain amount of bitterness in the water. But depending on the source, there can be more bad chemical there or less. So, however we start out, we need to purge the bad, the bitter, a day at a time, a moment at a time, a sentence at a time. So there's less bitterness, and the water gets sweeter as we go. So each and every day, we should have the goal of cleaning up our speech, getting rid of any bitterness, any anger, any resentment, any malice, that might be there and clean it up and make it sweet because like apples of gold and pictures of silver is a word spoken fitly I don't know whether I said that exactly right but that's a proverb so we have some work to do since it affects everyone every one of us so daily we need to be committed to do something about these tongues of ours and the attitudes that cause the tongues to say what they say.